Good morning. Happy New Year. Our text today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn there with me to Luke, chapter 10. For many, January 1st is a unique motivation and opportunity to make needed changes. It's a fresh start. It's a new year. Perhaps that's you. You know there are things that are off in your life. Some things probably got worse over the holidays. Too much good food and too little exercise is probably at the top of many of our lists. How about parenting? Infants all the way to adults and every stage in between. Or perhaps your finances. Some of us need to start a budget this year and then stick to it. And our list could go on and on because there are a lot of things in our lives that need attention. This morning, we're going to look at two brief stories from the life of Jesus. These two stories are incredibly important because in them, Jesus highlights and he underlines what should be at the very top of every New Year's resolution list. He shows us the foundation of what it means to be his disciple, which is crucial whether you are planning to make New Year's resolutions this year or not. For us today, there are many good things that we can pursue, wise changes that we need to make in our lives. But in these two accounts, Jesus will show us two priorities which we simply cannot neglect in 2023. Look with me at Luke chapter 10. The first story that we're going to work through together begins in verse 25, which comes on the heel of a happy report brought to Jesus. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends out 72 followers on a mission of proclamation and healing, and they come back and report to Jesus. They are excited. They say, Jesus, even the demons listen to us. Wow. And uh, Luke shares Jesus' response to his disciples in verses 21 through 24. And in it, Jesus rejoices that God is working through the humble and the simple. Many prophets and kings of old wished to experience the words and the works that Jesus was doing. And yet the so-called wise of Jesus' day lacked true understanding to see what was happening right in front of them. They missed it. From this scene of joy and wonder at how God works, Luke pivots to tell us about one of those wise and learned men of Jesus' day. He comes to Jesus with a question. Look with me at Luke 10, 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This lawyer's expertise was scripture. He would have been an expert in Jewish tradition and the Old Testament law. Luke tells us that this man was testing Jesus to see how he would answer this foundational question of religious belief. How do I experience eternal life? How do I get blessing from God? 
Rather than answering directly, in classic Jesus style, he turns the question around and points this expert to his field of study. Look at verses 26 and 27. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The the lawyer replies to his own question with these familiar words from Deuteronomy 6, 5. These are words that every Jew would recite daily. They're this call to love God with all of who you are. And he even includes the second half of Leviticus 19.18, and love your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer is no slouch. He knew his stuff. And he wisely sorted through the many commands of the law to identify these two as most important. And so Jesus affirms him in verse 28. He says, verse 28 says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. And then Jesus uses some familiar words from Leviticus, maybe not familiar to us, but to this religious scholar. Leviticus 18, he says, do this and you will live. He's saying, this is the key to the covenant with God that he made with the nation of Israel. Do these things and you will live. The path to eternal life is found in total love and devotion to God and treating others in light of that love, loving one's neighbor. But that wasn't the end of the questioning for this lawyer. This answer from Jesus wasn't enough for him. He had a deeper question. He wanted to get more specific about the command to love one's neighbor. The lawyer knew that this call to love neighbor could be interpreted as incredibly broad, overwhelming, and potentially uncomfortable. Was this upright Jewish lawyer supposed to love Impure sinners, the foolish, the arrogant, people outside of the covenant community, outside of the nation of Israel. How far was this neighbor love supposed to reach? How far was far enough? Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus hears this lawyer's question, and he answers with a story coming from God's city. Coming, a story of a man coming from God's city, Jerusalem, on his way to Jericho. The winding desert road that linked these two cities was fraught with danger. Thieves took advantage of the many caves that lined the 18-mile-long pathway that descended from the height of Jerusalem down to Jericho. They would spring on travelers as they passed by. So, It's no surprise to hear how this story goes that Jesus tells. Look with me at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Can you think about a time in your life when you were in desperate need of help? Maybe you had a blown tire on the interstate. Or maybe during this ice storm, you went off the road in the middle of nowhere. 
Maybe you found yourself turned around and somehow in a dangerous part of the city after dark. The feeling of dread and helplessness right, that we have in those situations is what Jesus is getting at here with this road and what happens to this poor man. When I've been in situations like these, I immediately start praying. Unless you think I went off the road in the ice storm, I really made that example up. <laughs> but maybe you did. <laughs> when you're in trouble, right, you look for help. When I've been stuck on the side of the road, right, you're looking at headlights, hoping somebody's going to pull over and help. Right? If you're in a tough situation, I've been lost in the city at, at dark, you're looking to see, is there a friendly face? Someone who can come to help me out. As Jesus continues to tell the story, the help that this poor man needs seems to come right away with two devout and God-fearing Jews. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. What do you think Jesus is doing here? Why wouldn't these two men come to the aid of their fellow Jew, their neighbor? Maybe they were just bad Jews. They didn't care about the command to love one's neighbor. Or maybe given their important religious duties and responsibilities, they didn't want to become unclean by touching what looked like a dead body on the side of the road. Or maybe they suspected that this was a trap. Or if not a trap, maybe the thieves were still nearby and they thought, we can't really help. We're just going to become victims ourselves. It's best to just keep moving. Jesus doesn't tell us why these two men didn't stop to help. But the lawyer and anyone else who had traveled this dangerous road could fill in their own reasons for why the command to love one's neighbor might not apply in this dangerous situation. But that was not the end of Jesus' story. In fact, this lawyer would have expected a third Jewish traveler coming. Why? Well, in the Old Testament books of Ezra, Nehemiah, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, books that were written after the Babylonian exile and return to the land, the nation of Israel was often described or broken down into three distinct parts. You had priests... Levites, the tribe from which the priests came, and then the rest of Israel. If you go through and look, you can come up afterwards and I'll give you the text. It's in these post-exilic books, the nation of Israel is broken down into these three parts, priests, Levites, and then just regular old Jews. So here's this expert in the law, Jesus is telling the story. First you have a priest come, then a Levite, who comes next? The third person to come upon this man in Jesus' story would have been an utter surprise to this lawyer. He expected a third, but not like this. It wasn't a regular Jew. When it seemed that this poor man's fate could not get any worse, Jesus tells the lawyer that the next person to come upon the man was a Samaritan. If you don't know, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. The Samaritans started as a group of Jews that intermarried with other nations. They developed a reworked version of the first five books of the Old Testament. They set up a competing temple on the nearby Mount Gerizim. 
which was destroyed by the time of Jesus. And they had reworked the history of Israel. They were worse than outsiders, worse than Gentiles. They were traitors. They were people to be hated and rejected. Look and see what happens in verses 33 through 35. Jesus says, But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. This would have been a very uncomfortable moment for Jesus' listeners, for any Jew listening to this story. The Samaritan's actions were almost unthinkable. The Samaritan didn't yell insults or gloat about this man's misfortune, and his response didn't somehow justify the inaction of the priest and the Levite. The Samaritan saw the same thing that these two men saw. But unlike them, he did not close his heart to this man's plight. He did not continue his journey away from home, but he entered into the man's danger. The Samaritan cared for him by pouring oil and wine on his wounds and bandaging them. He put him on his own animal and he took him to an inn and he paid for the stay and gave extra to cover the costs and said he'd come back and cover anything additional beyond that. Jesus tells the lawyer that the Samaritan was moved with compassion and he acted with generosity of his time and his resources. He treats this man like family, like his own. Jesus makes the hero of this story someone that this lawyer would avoid at all costs, someone that he wouldn't be caught talking to, someone that he hated. Having finished the story, Jesus asks the lawyer his own question in verse 36. He says, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The question from this lawyer to Jesus was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' question to him after telling the story is, who proved to be a neighbor? And in verse 37, the lawyer responds, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. This lawyer asked Jesus a crucial question. How far does the command to love my neighbor actually reach? He wanted to know who counted as a neighbor, who was in, and who was out. Reading this account, it is easy to condemn the lawyer and his self-justifying question. But I think there are many of us here today, if we are being honest with ourselves, we know we have asked a similar kind of question. Some people are hard to love. In preparing the sermon, I actually made a list of the kinds of people that are difficult to love, but I finished the list and I realized it was 
maybe a little bit too specific to me, so I edited it out. But you know what I'm talking about here. Some people really are hard to love. Who do you find hard to love? Maybe you spent time with them over the holidays. Maybe you haven't seen them for a while because the friendship died. Maybe you recently unfollowed them on social media. There are certain types of people that, for whatever reason, really bother you. And the same is true for me. They drive us crazy. Do we really have to be a neighbor to people like that? Especially when there are plenty of other people that we actually like. You know, people that we want to be around and spend time with. Can't we just turn the other way when we see these people coming? Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan teaches us not to ask, who is my neighbor? Or the real question, who can I safely ignore? Or who can I walk past even in their hour of need? Rather, the story of the Good Samaritan teaches us to ask, how can I be a neighbor to those in need? This is the first of two priorities for each one of us to take seriously in 2023. How can I be a neighbor to those in need? Answering that question needs to be at the top of our list of New Year priorities. Jesus' command to the lawyer to go and do likewise is for us too. Rather than closing our hearts to those in need around us, Jesus is calling us to open our eyes to to their needs and to be moved with compassion. The people in your life that are hard to love, have you seen their need? Have you been willing to look on them with compassion? I'm not suggesting that we ignore or overlook sin or foolish decisions. I get that. That's part of the reason why you probably find them hard to love. But what I'm saying is, have you taken the time to lay down your weapons, to set aside your probably righteous indignation, and see them as people in need? People who are broken, but are loved by God. Praise God that he looked on us, his enemies, saw our need, and felt compassion. There are people in our lives right now Jesus is calling us to be a neighbor to in their need. But there are also people that we need to go and find, like this Samaritan. It it is a blessing that many in this room today do not often have to travel a treacherous road like the one from Jerusalem to Jericho. But there are many in our community who do. Kids, young moms, families, the addicted, incarcerated, homeless. We have neighbors right here in Vancouver who have real needs. And I think part of what's going on here is Jesus is calling us to open our eyes, to see them, to be moved with compassion, and see what we can do to help.
the lawyer had the right answer about how to inherit eternal life. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. But actually doing those two things is a different matter, as we see with his attempt to redefine what a neighbor is. Though it wasn't the focus of his interaction with Jesus, I think it would be safe to say that the lawyer not only had a deficient view of who his neighbor was, but he also had a deficient view of who was standing before him. He had a deficient view of what it meant to love God. Here he is, God incarnate, standing before him, and he's testing him, and then he's trying to justify himself in front of him. What will it take for us to do better than this very religious Old Testament expert when it comes to actually living out the commands to love God and neighbor? In the next five verses, 38 through 42, Luke helps us to see the answer to this question through two sisters, Martha and Mary, and some uh, dinner party drama. Martha was a disciple who loved Jesus, and she loved to serve. So when she heard Jesus was in town, she was ready to make him feel right at home with a great meal. Look at verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. For some here, Martha's desire to express her love for Jesus through hospitality and acts of service, it resonates deeply. You love sharing what you have with others. You love hosting and preparing a delicious meal, meeting a practical need with generosity. I think that's what Martha is doing here. She wants to honor Jesus. But this is a big group, and there is a lot of work to do. In Luke 10, we see that Martha gets busy and distracted with all the work. We also are going to see that she has a sister named Mary, who could be helping her with the preparations, but Mary was not to be found in the kitchen. Look with me at verses 39 and 40. Martha had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Here, Martha invites Jesus into her home, makes him comfortable, and just when she needs her sister's help, Mary seems to be lazing about with Jesus and the rest of the guests. So Martha does what most people in her shoes would do. She goes to the boss and says, hey, she's not pulling her weight. And she expects Jesus to do something about it, to get after Mary. We see Jesus' uh, response in verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. In all of Martha's preparations, she had missed something crucial. In her desire to serve Jesus with warm hospitality, she misses something huge. She misses Jesus. When Jesus came through the door, Mary saw and heard something that she could not ignore. 
Mary was fixed on every word that Jesus spoke, words that prophets and kings of old longed to hear. Mary listened at the feet of the Son of God as he revealed the Father. Perhaps he spoke of the call to repent and to believe. Perhaps he spoke of his coming death. Mary found what Jesus calls the good part, sitting at his feet, listening, being attentive, loving, and abiding. And Jesus would not let service, even service to him, come in the way of that. Martha wanted to honor Jesus with an elaborate meal, which was a very good thing. But more important than any act of service we perform for Jesus or for anyone else is first experiencing and responding to his love. This Jesus would go on, just as he predicted, to die a gruesome and lonely death, betrayed by one of his disciples, turned over to the Romans by his own religious leaders, and executed in a most humiliating and painful way. Jesus gave and he sacrificed so much so that sinful and selfish people like us who fall short of loving God and neighbor, people like us, he gave his life so that we could experience once for all forgiveness from a holy God. His death established a new covenant, a new way. His life for ours. Every sinful thought, word, and deed paid for in his atoning death. But as you know, or perhaps as you've heard, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave and he sent the Spirit of God to transform and empower his followers. If you're here today and you've never looked to Jesus in trust, if you've never aligned your life with him, turned from your sin, repented, put your faith in his death on the cross, for your sin. If you've never done that, today is a good day. You can do that. You can respond to this incredible gift. You can respond to his compassion in response to our need by turning to Jesus in faith. If you were here last week, you got to hear these two guys, Reuben and Zeke, share right, about how God worked in your life. Sorry to call you out in the middle of a sermon, <laughs> but you're here. If you were here, you heard that. The opportunity is here and it's now. And like Zeke even shared, right? whether you've been in church your whole life or whether this is quite foreign, God's grace is for you. And this is an opportunity to turn to him, to respond to that love. And the same is true for each one of us here who considers ourselves a follower of Christ. Sometimes we can be so busy serving that we forget that abiding comes first. I think Martha gets picked on from this text probably more than she deserves. Jesus doesn't tell Martha to stop serving. He doesn't condemn her preparations or this warm hospitality. She is doing something very good. The world would be a much better place if there were more people like Martha, more people like Jesus, who sacrificially gave to care for the needs of others. Some of you may recall the first point of this sermon was actually about that. Where Martha went off track was in assuming the wrong thing about her sister's motivation and actions and judging her. 
In the busyness of her preparations, she lost sight of God incarnate sitting in her living room. And she misses how crucial it was for Mary to sit there with him at his feet. She's so focused on loving her neighbor and getting Mary's help that she misses what her sister is actually doing. Loving and being loved by God. Abiding in Jesus comes first. Martha and the lawyer actually share this in common. He too misses God incarnate standing before him. He misses God's heart of compassion for the lost, for the sinner, for those outside the nation of Israel. In these accounts, neither Martha nor the lawyer are thinking about Jesus as the source of life. Instead, both end up trying to use him to validate their decisions and perspective. The lawyer seeks to justify himself. Mary tries to pull Jesus into correct. Martha tries to pull Jesus into correct Mary. When we ignore Jesus, even our best efforts to love God and neighbor will be distorted, like we see with the lawyer and with Martha. In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches us to ask, how can I be a neighbor to those in need? Here in this short story about these two sisters, Jesus is teaching us to ask a second question. Am I making time to sit at the feet of Jesus? Answering that question needs to also be at the top of our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Am I making time to sit at the feet of Jesus? As we saw in the text, Mary literally sits at Jesus' feet to listen to his words and learn from him. Jesus may no longer be with us in the flesh, but he has not left us without his word. In 2023, let's listen to him and be in this book. Now, I realize what I'm doing right now is probably the absolute definition of preaching to the choir. You are here on a Sunday listening to me talk about this book, and I'm telling you to be in this book. I find that ironic, but just wanted to say it. Let's continue to be people who listen to this book in 2023. Let's be people who prioritize Sundays. We already heard this morning from Carl about so many ways right, that our church is doing this, whether it's women's Bible study or the men's studies that happen on Friday and Saturday, right? There's Sunday school. There's life groups. That's a core part of who we are. We are people who gather together to sit and listen to Jesus at his feet. And we do that when we read and study, meditate on his word. We're listening to him. Now, in addition to you know, all these ways we can do it together, Carl also talked about the reading plans. Glenwood has set up, I think there's five different ones. I went online and looked, and there's stuff out in the foyer too. Different ways to work your way systematically through God's word this year. There's some plans that cover all of scripture and some that cover just key sections. Right? Are you making time in your own personal life too to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen? What a great resource these plans are. You could do it on your own or you could get a friend or a family member to read through with you. Take time to sit and to listen. It doesn't have to look the same for each one of us. There are a lot of different ways to engage God's word. But there is one important component to how we do this, whether individually or together with others. 
like we see in Mary, we do it relationally. Mary isn't checking a box. It isn't an academic study where we dissect things and pull it apart and notice chiasms. She's listening with a heart that's open to Jesus. She's leaning in. She's ready to hear from him, to obey, to respond. We engage God's word with hearts that are open to him and ready to follow when we're doing it the right way. How are you going to sit at Jesus' feet in 2023? In these two encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, we found two priorities that Jesus' disciples cannot neglect. Following Jesus means being attentive to him and taking his love to those he's placed in our lives. These two go hand in hand. We find the motivation and strength to love even the most frustrating uh, people in his love that extended even to us, his enemies. In just a moment, we're going to spend some time remembering and celebrating his gift of life, his death, his sacrifice for us through communion. If we want to be Jesus' disciples, then we've got to listen to and learn from him and then take his love to the people in need around us. Concern for others and attention to Jesus are at the heart of God's people. Let these things be true of us in 2023. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you together as a family with grateful hearts. Thank you for life and breath this day. Thank you for a new year. Father, we ask that you would help us to use this time well. Jesus, thank you for teaching us about these two priorities. Help us to see the importance of sitting at your feet. Grow our desire to be with you and to hear from you. And strengthen us by your spirit to make needed changes this year. And Jesus, we praise and thank you for showing us what compassion and sacrifice, even for your enemies, looks like. Give us eyes to see those around us who need our help. And move our hearts with compassion and appropriate action. We ask these things for your sake and in your name. Amen.